Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Podcast Public Service Announcement You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Let's get out of the way a particularly dumb theory we've alluded to in our Templar discussion by beating up on the very silly book, The Secret Societies of America's Elite by Stephen Sora. We suspected on site that this one would conveniently feed us a bunch of extremely credulous bullshit all in one package, and we weren't disappointed. Sora confidently asserts, without bothering to back up that assertion through any actual research or facts, that the Templar's international organization definitely survived the machinations of King Philip and turned into a gigantic underground network that spread its influence everywhere. Again, actual scholars do not buy this thesis. Like, at all. From there, he claims that a French family, the St. Clairs, who resettled in Scotland to become Clan St. Clair, are responsible for restoring and or restarting the Templars in Scotland. Now, a quick check of the Clan St. Clair website tells us... Wait, Dana, could you explain this? Ugh, what in the rubby burns is this shite? Oi, Sora, you booms out the window, you fandan. Bloody Normans named St. Clair were moving to the Highlands back in the 11th fucking century after a little thing called the Battle of fucking Hastings. Ring a bell, you numpty. And he talks about that bloody church, saying, Now, we are certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the starting place of Freemasonry was the construction of Rosslyn Chapel. Oh, yeah? Go back to the template discussion and you'll see that's bullshit, you fucking bumpot. Having ignored Dana's advice, Sora goes on to still more weightless assertions about the Templar-Mason connection and beyond. For example, he suggests some Templars ran back over to France in time to be part of the army of Joan of Arc. Not a single footnote. Also, why would the Templars, who supposedly hate the Catholic Church, travel to France to fight on the side of a fanatically orthodox military leader? Plus, they were a total boys club, and she had girl cuties. Ew. Sora settles down to argue that, mostly, the remnant Templars either fought as mercenaries or learned building trades. Uh-oh, I see where this is going. Quote the man, Dana. They often employed secret words and handshakes to recognize each other and come to one another's aid. Their sons, too, would keep up the tradition. Again, the warrior monks just took up house with ladies and had a bunch of kids? I mean, if you're making this shit up with no references, Babylon, you vagabond. Then he suggests this bullshit as further evidence. 
The term Freemason entered the English language in the same century that the Knights Templar, as an order, was officially dissolved. So what? Exactly. Even if it's true, it doesn't mean anything. But then you can read further and learn that Freemason was actually a corruption of the original French, that the Templars called each other brother or frère, which, once they became bricklayers, became frère maçon, and you get it. But there's more, of course. When the Templars traveled, they erected quarters, and these became lodges, so named after the French loge. The guard posted at the door of the lodge during meetings was the tiler in English, derived from tailleur, meaning one who cuts. But the term Freemason soon took on a whole new meaning, because unlike most of the populace, which was shackled to the land by the feudal system that prevailed in England and France, the former Templars became working craftsmen who were free to travel to find employment. Thus they were free masons. Couple things. First, this explanation for the origins of the term Freemason contradicts reliable sources. For example, Dickey identifies the term as having originally referred to a top-tier stone carver who was trusted to create the most ornate and decorative freestanding elements of a structure, thus cutting free stone instead of laying bricks. He was therefore a Freemason. This term Freemason eventually was adopted by the group as it evolved into a gentleman's club. Now this derivation isn't certain, but it's a hell of a lot better attested to than the frere maçon nonsense. Which you'll note Sora actually undercuts immediately by suggesting the term actually referred to the non-peasant status of the Templar Masons. Well, which is it? And while the term Tyler is not entirely understood, tailleur is not among the potential origins for the term that's listed on Wikipedia. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for Sora's suggestion. And yeah, lodge probably comes from the French loge, but about a third of English words have a French origin, so surprise, surprise. But the main point is, there is not a single reference or suggestion of a reliable source of any of that shit we just discussed. History is easy, kids. Just write shit down with confidence and for God's sake, don't show your work. Then it's on to other made-up connections. Why, Sora asks, when you're initiated, do you hear a promise that the brothers will protect you from your enemies and keep your secrets? What secrets could a simple stonemason peasant have to protect? Why would this man have enemies? Because in reality, he was a Knight Templar dummy. They're the ones who needed protection. Of course, we just covered this. The Mason's grandiose initiation promises are the play acting that helps form connections and brotherhood among men who were previously strangers. Their secrets do not in reality amount to much. But Sora wants to wring all the nonsense he can out of this formulation, so he just raises questions, like your formerly favorite aunt and uncle, who went to the University of Facebook and now know more about vaccines than qualified doctors and scientists. But our mentioning this book at all has been building to this point. Sora admits that not all Templars became Masons. Some instead became Jack fucking Sparrow. Here's how the story goes. Some Templars took to the seas under the flag with skull and crossed bones, which eventually came to be known as the Jolly Roger. Dana, if you please... The skull and two bones, however, had a much deeper meaning to the original Templars who sailed under the flag. Their insignia represented resurrection. The Catholic Church taught that the resurrection of man was a bodily resurrection. But the Templars believed, contrary to the Church, that only a skull and two bones needed to be buried in order for a person to be admitted into heaven. Also, the flag supposedly indicated that the Templars as a group had themselves been resurrected as feared pirates and thus were a new threat to their enemies, the Catholic Church, and the idea that the Templars would once again conquer. Please note that the Templars didn't really conquer anything. They arrived after the First Crusades and were mostly trying to defend already conquered lands. But why quibble? You will be shocked. 
shocked to learn that Sora gives not a single reference for any of the above. You will be similarly shocked to learn that even a cursory review of the available mainstream history suggests... One... The legendary Templar fleet that definitely existed, according to Sora and numerous other conspiracist Templar researchers, has never been shown to exist. Two. There is only one confirmed Templar pirate, we even know his name, Roger de Flor. Super interesting guy, look him up. Three. The Skull and Crossbones Jolly Roger flag has nothing to do with the Templars or their theological resurrected body differences with the Catholic Church, but rather is thought to have derived from a flag flown earlier by Barbary Corsairs, a group of Islamic pirates who operated out of northern Africa. That flag being a skull on a green background. So that was some dumb fun. But now let's get back to another Masonic conspiracy theory that really had legs. The story of the real power behind the French Revolution. This one originated in the late 18th century and is perhaps the most important, impactful, unsupported allegation against the Masons ever leveled. Our setting is France, in the wake of the Revolution. This was the scary 18th century democratizing revolution, coming over a decade after the far less terrifying rebellion that saw the formation of the United States. Dickey's book synopsizes. The French Revolution began in 1789, when a wrangle over tax between the king and the nobility exploded unexpectedly into the widespread and euphoric aspiration to create a new era of liberty. Sovereignty was to reside in the nation and not in the monarchy. Government was to be answerable to public opinion rather than to cliquish aristocrats and bishops. Rights would triumph over privileges. Never before had a society sought so completely to reinvent itself. Remember the French Revolution, we sort of think of it now as being just one of those kind of events in history. At the time, it was cataclysmic. Every religious and social and political certainty seemed to have been thrown on a bonfire by the French Revolution. The link between God and the authority of the monarch had been broken. A king had been beheaded. Dangerous new ideas like democracy and the nation and so on new forms of religion that nobody could quite tell what relationship there were to traditional religion. Priests had been persecuted. The old order had never seemed to be so imperiled. War, of course, had spread across Europe. The mob seemed to be taking over. Conservatives, both religiously and politically, regarded this event with absolute consternation. So the revolution was traumatizing not only to kings and queens who preferred to avoid, shall we call it, radical chiropractic, but also for socially and especially religious conservatives watching in horror as time-tested institutions and dogmas were torn down with chaos, fire, and bloodshed taking their place. Radical Jacobins remade everything down to the fucking calendar based on the idea that all existing ideas were bad and must be destroyed and rebuilt in the image of the revolution. Oh, and at the same time, those Jacobins executed a campaign of reprisal and political murder that is appropriately known today as the Reign of Terror. So it's not like these fears were unfounded. At least, that was, until the Abbé Barouel came along. The first person to really articulate a fully formed conspiracy theory was a paranoid former Jesuit. Okay, accurate words to describe the man but that feels hurtful. Who saw the machinations of the Freemasons behind everything bad that was going on in the world. His name was the Abbé Barwell. He was an exiled French priest living in London, a refugee from the French Revolution. 
And at the very end of the 18th century, he published this huge account of the origins of the French Revolution. Barewell's spiritual mentor was killed in prison by the revolutionaries in 1791, 11 months before the paranoid former Jesuit himself decamped for friendlier English climes. He threw himself into composing Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism, which began appearing in print in 1797 and would eventually become a five-volume pseudo-historical screed. Barouel set out his thesis. Everything in the French Revolution, everything right down to the most appalling deeds, was foreseen, premeditated, arranged, resolved upon, and decided. Everything was caused by the deepest wickedness, because everything was prepared and directed by men who alone held the thread uniting the intrigues that had long been woven within the secret societies. The French Revolution was the result of a dastardly conspiracy by the Freemasons. Obviously, we're not going to do a full history of Jacobinism or the other threads of political ferment that duked it out during the bloodiest days of the Revolution. But the idea that this political party, or any other, was the result of deliberate behind-the-scenes manipulation by the Freemasons is absurd on its face. Still, the appeal is clear. Conservatives, both religiously and politically, regarded this event with absolute consternation. For somebody like Barwell, it was demonic. For that sense of complete, if you like, almost panic and disorientation that the French Revolution caused, a conspiracy theory which said, you know what, there is an explanation for all of this, and it's actually quite simple. It's the Freemasons. They're the ones who did it. And actually, they've been conspiring to do it since the very dawn of heresy in the 3rd, 4th century AD. Its simplicity and the sheer volume of evidence that he produced, five volumes of it, it was one of those books, I think, which was more cited than read. Alas, I've read it. (laughs) That's a lot of my life that I won't get back. But the fundamental simplicity of the explanation had a kind of magic authority to it that some people found exciting and reassuring at the same time. Did you catch it when Dickey mentioned that Barrowell argued the Masonic conspiracy that led to the French Revolution had its origins in third century heresy? Just like the Masons themselves, enemies like Barrowell can't resist pushing the influence of the Masons back to ancient history, giving their claims the weight of centuries of behind-the-scenes scheming and plotting by almighty, malicious secret actors. Barrowell's version traces Masonry back to Manichaeanism. The early dualist philosophy we covered as part of the Cathars. The original poison was the idea that Christ was not the only road to heaven, but rather one of several options, a philosophy Barrowell saw as directly connected to the Masons' founding ethic of religious tolerance. Then, of course, the Templars got in on the action after they were pretend destroyed and went on to form the Masons hundreds of years later in Scotland in a scheme similar to the one we addressed earlier. Barrowell suggested that the Masons' seemingly anodyne oaths and rituals were designed to, quote, seduce new members into imbibing ever larger doses of the craft's addictive ideology, while at the same time providing cover for their terrible, secret, true purpose of corrupting Christendom. There then came the blood-curdling final disclosure. The Masonic watchwords of brotherhood and freedom, so cozy and bland when first encountered, actually meant nothing less than a secret declaration of war on Christ and his cult, war on kings and all their thrones. This was the wicked mission that would be fulfilled in the French Revolution. 
This show has frequently pointed to the protocols of the elders of Zion as the wellspring for much of the most pernicious 20th century conspiracy thinking. But Dickey makes a strong argument for that piece of malicious swill being heavily influenced by Barrowell's pioneering hackery. That same appeal, I think, characterizes the conspiracy theories about aliens or whoever it might be, or the Jews or whatever, that are then reproduced on that same basic template of the original conspiracy theory, which is the Abbe Barwell on the Freemasons. And like the assholes responsible for the protocols, the idea was to make people permanently afraid. The danger had not, and would never, pass. Barrowell had a warning for all those who observed the conspiracy unfold from abroad. They must not delude themselves that the danger had ended because the Jacobins, the most radical of the revolutionaries, had fallen from power in 1794. The conspiracy was international. It was only just beginning, and it was coming for your children. If Jacobinism triumphs, then that is the end of your religion, your laws, your property, of all forms of government and civil society. Wealth, fields, houses, right down to the humblest cottage, children. Nothing will belong to you anymore. Thankfully, we as a society have long since progressed beyond this sort of open-ended, fact-free fear-mongering. The point of mandatory vaccination is to identify the sincere Christians in the ranks, the free thinkers, the men with high testosterone levels, and anyone else who does not love Joe Biden and make them leave immediately. It's a takeover of the U.S. military. Illegal immigrants are burglars, are thieves who are there to harm your security and steal your prosperity. What's happening at the border is a flat-out invasion. We are being overwhelmed every day. As the illegal invasion at our southern border intensifies, it is an invasion. And I'm going to call it an invasion, like it or not. This is the Muslim Brotherhood plan. It always has been. You set up these enclaves in the West. You demand of the host country that they allow you to run your affairs according to Sharia. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. How did Barrowell come upon this supposed knowledge? Because he himself had been a Freemason. Or so he claimed. But don't worry, he never swore any oaths or anything. Which, if that's the case, how was he ever a mason? But he also learned all about the most dastardly shit from secret sources he was unfortunately unable to name. Oh, and he lost the most damning evidence he had collected before his book was even published. Aww, bad luck. So obviously, the book has problems. But what's it like to read it? Well, we gave it a shot. It's available on Amazon Kindle. And we even perused the shockingly similar yet unrelated book, Proofs of a Conspiracy, another nutso classic from the same era with an extremely similar thesis, but this one written by a man named John Robison. Again, though, we love you, our loyal audience. But that love has limits. So we gave up. Fortunately, as he mentioned in our interview, John Dickey, for his sins, did indeed read all of Barrowell's work. His review? Memoirs illustrating the history of Jacobinism was idiotic. It has nothing to contribute to our understanding of the causes of the French Revolution. Yet it does still have much to teach us about how conspiracy thinking makes complex events seem simple and makes us feel clever for oversimplifying them. At a stretch, the most that any modern historian of the French Revolution would be prepared to concede to Barrowell's analysis is that the formal equality of lodge procedures was one of the many influences that went into the emergence of the political clubs, including the Jacobins, that were so important to the events of the 1790s. 
That said, there is no more powerful way to demonstrate the febrile idiocy of any explanation of the French Revolution as a Masonic conspiracy than to follow what happened to many brothers after 1789. Yeah, what did happen to Masons in the wake of the Revolution? <coughs> oh, really? Seems weird the Masons would be among the groups most persecuted by the Jacobins and other revolutionaries if the whole Michigas was secretly created and guided by the Masons in the first place. Barrel would probably tell you it's a misdirect, letting a few Masons go to the guillotine to keep the secret. In other words, hand-waving bullshit. Admittedly, Barrowell had done his research in terms of understanding Masonic history. It's just that, as Dickie puts it, He squeezed, twisted, and cropped it to fit his monomaniacal vision. Before we move on, we should note that we'll be coming back to Barrowell and his unwieldy tome for our final topic in this series, the Illuminati. They, even more than the Freemasons, were to Barrowell responsible for the horrors of the Revolution. But in the meantime, we want to focus on one part of his argument, that the standard three degrees of Blue Lodge masonry were just there to lure in unsuspecting Christians so they could be put to work by those who had graduated to masonry's much more exclusive, more important, more secretive, and presumably more nefarious, higher degrees. But if there are only three degrees in standard masonry... And there are. Then what the fuck is he talking about? He's talking about the other major threat of masonry. One that is uniquely French in origin, despite its name, and one that has inadvertently driven the conspiracist mythos around the craft to new heights. Scottish Rite Masonry. You say it's French, but then you say it's Scottish. Which is it? Well, the name is part of the fun. This branch dates back to December of 1736, when a Scots mason named Andrew Michael Ramsey delivered a speech to a major convention of French masons. The speech, which he thought would convince the national authorities that the craft was compatible with Catholicism and therefore the king's goons would be encouraged to ease up on all the persecuting. The speech actually spurred a series of police raids on local lodges, and Ramsay stopped doing anything too masony to ensure he didn't get in further Dutch with the crown. But if the speech was initially a failure, it ended up having a huge effect on how masonry was practiced in France. Much of it was pretty standard fare, but Ramsay also deviated from the Constitution's narrative in one highly significant respect. He worked in the Crusaders. He claimed that crusading knights rediscovered the secrets of Solomon's temple and the craft while they were in the Holy Land, and used them to revive the sense of Christian mission that had first inspired them to capture Jerusalem for Christ. Ramsey explained that the Masonic Crusaders had vowed to rebuild the temple and imitate the Israelites by wielding the trowel and mortar in one hand and the sword and buckler in the other. In invoking the Crusaders, and with them the culture of medieval chivalry, Ramsey tapped the vast source of imagery and myth that would soon generate a complex of Masonic degrees known as the Scottish Rites. Why Scottish? The reasons are tenuous. Ramsey's new crusader myth attributed a key role to his homeland in preserving and transmitting the Masonic tradition. When the Holy Land was all but lost, in 1286 a leading knight brought the craft's mysteries back to Scotland for safekeeping. The connection is no closer than that. In reality, the origins of the Scottish Rites are entirely French, so Scotland's real role in the development of Freemasonry, having been expunged from the record by the Constitutions, made a return in France in an entirely mythical guise. So we can trace the Masons-Templars connection back to one Mason speech from 1736. Apparently all similar tales, including Barrowell's, sprung from this event. But what effect did this regrounding of the Masons in the exploits of the Crusading Knights have on how French Masons masoned? There were two main impacts. The first was a drastic increase in the number of degrees offered by various lodges. Shortly, there were three new side degrees available in France, all based on this new, heroic, knights-errant, faux history for the group. Then there were five. Then seven. 
By the mid-18th century, the most authoritative history of French Freemasonry has referred to a tropical forest of degrees that sprouted from the 1750s. Suddenly, Scottish Rite Lodges could offer as many degrees as their feverish members could dream up. Here are some of our favorites. Elect Philosopher Knight, Knight of the Argonauts, Scotsman of the Scottish Academy, Scotsman of the Celestial Jerusalem. Remember, these degrees were initially available only to French Freemasons. Continue. Master of Esmeralda's Table, Companion of Paracelsus, The Right of the Blazing Star, The Illuminated Theosophers, The Architects of Africa. Badass, no? Which reminds us, recall when we were talking about Tobias Churton, one of the authors who led us through Rosicrucianism, and we mentioned to Dana's dismay that he was a perfected knight of the Rose Croix and the Pelican, 18th degree, ancient and accepted right. As you might expect then, that designation is not issued by some Rosicrucian governing body, but rather is one of the branches of Scottish Rite Masonry that has embraced Rosicrucian symbology as part of its identity. It does seem like more fun to be in the group that has all of the cool titles, rather than the three degrees only fuddy-duddies. You're certainly not alone in that assessment, Dana. In fact, one of American history's most famous Masons, Benjamin Franklin, was initiated into one of the most notable Scottish Rite Lodges, the Nine Sisters, while he was working to gin up support among Parisians for the American Rebellion. And a celebrity even closer to our hearts, Voltaire, was initiated near his death, leaning on his friend Franklin's arm during the ceremony. And we'll see a bit later that the Scottish Rite version of Freemasonry would have a huge role to play in the ongoing racial schism among American Masons that persists to this day. The point is that all of Barrowell's carefully, tediously laid out arguments about the Templar and Manichaean history of Freemasonry was simply, as Dickey puts it, buying into the Scottish Rite Masons' own myth-making. This is probably a great time to come back to that issue of how the Masons deal with women, because in many ways France and French Masons have been at the center of this topic. The obvious question hanging over the whole discussion is, why could fearful Jesuit become a Freemason, while Danny Unicord could not? Can we please note at this point that while I too question why this society should be exclusively male, I have no actual interest in becoming a Freemason? Stipulated. But why can't she? The Constitutions of the Freemasons of 1723 that I mentioned is the first document that actually explicitly says women aren't allowed to become Freemasons. And it's always been something that the Freemasons are very uncomfortable about. It's caused great schisms and fissures within Freemasonry. There have been, particularly going in the 20th century, various sort of adjunct bodies to Freemasonry in which women have been allowed. Some now accept women on an absolutely equal basis to men and have mixed lodge meetings and so on. I'm thinking, for example, of the Grand Orient of France, the biggest Masonic tradition in France. But they only did that in, I think it was 2010. They didn't have time to go into this part of the story during the interview. But the reason the Grand Orient Lodge changed its policies was because an existing member, Olivier Chaumont, announced herself as trans and asked to be recognized as a woman Freemason, just as she had been previously accepted as a man. When they accepted her, they also accepted future women as part of the deal. Right. And even in those places where the Freemasons have gotten on the gender equality bandwagon, it's not all wine and roses. In those branches of Freemasonry these days where women are let in, there's a glass ceiling a very clear glass searing. They don't occupy positions of power in Freemasonry as a whole. So there's a very mixed picture, and Freemasons are quite defensive about this idea that they don't exclude women. Still not a great look, even for the more egalitarian lodges. 
Meanwhile, aside from adjunct groups like the Order of the Eastern Star, which was specifically designed as a sort of auxiliary for women who wanted to be Masons, were relatives of Masons, but obviously couldn't be Masons because vaginas caused lodges to burst into flames or something. So unfortunately, we don't have too much that's interesting to say about the relationship of women and Freemasonry. For the most part, the dudes are keeping them out for no good reason, which is probably contributing to the decline of the craft overall. But we did want to make sure we got to include this fascinating story about an extraordinary person and her role in the Masons way back in the 18th century. The Chevalier d'Eon is a fascinating character, one of those unique 18th century figures. French, but spend a lot of time in London as a spy and diplomat who joined the Freemasons in London and subsequently went on to cause a great deal of an awkwardness and embarrassment for Freemasons because she liked to dress as a woman and cultivated, shall we say, a great deal of doubt about her body, you know, whether she had a female or male sexual organs. And a huge betting market grew up in London around the question of whether she really was a man or a woman, a figure that many of the great literary figures and people commented on at the time, eventually went back to France and was ordered by the government to keep dressing as a woman, not to change, which she doesn't seem to have found a particular hardship, lived as a woman continued to be a Freemason in France, even though Freemasons weren't allowed to be women in England. In France, there was a kind of subordinate branch. They were more tolerant, shall we say. And then eventually, when she died, a post-mortem examination revealed that she had a male body, if you like. Now, it's very difficult looking back in history to put our categories on. Is this somebody who was a transsexual or transvestite or some sort of trans? Because this was somebody who was carrying a lot of scandals around with them. And it was quite convenient to be able to, as it were, disappear into being a woman at a certain point in her career. She's a fascinating character and a fascinating illustration of the gender trouble that has dogged Freemasonry from the outset.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.